0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Boards podcast. I'm your host, Leah Zarek, and today we will be talking about 2020. It's a year many of us are eager to put in the rearview mirror, but the MSRB did take some time to look at the year in review of 2020 and really understand what happened in this extraordinary year in the municipal bond market.
1: I think a lot of things the Fed did had a positive impact. And I will say that the Fed's accommodative monetary policy during this period of time really helped not only the municipal market, but all markets. And I think that was a tremendous factor in the recovery in the various markets across the U.S.
0: That's John Bagley, who is not only the MSRB's chief market structure officer, but who also spent the better part of 2020 on loan to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York to advise on their implementation of the municipal liquidity facility. He's also one of the authors of a recent report that recaps 2020 in the municipal market, and that report's available on MSRB.org. We're really glad to have John with us on the podcast today to talk through the findings of that report. But let's start before the pandemic joined us and look back at the beginning of 2020. John, how was the market looking in January and February of last year before we saw real intense disruption in March?
1: Thanks, Leah. Let me start before we go into the market, just saying that the views I express are really my own and don't necessarily reflect the views of the MSRB or its board of directors. So before we talk about the beginning of 2020, I think it's really important to look back to 2019. And if you start at the beginning of 2019, you saw tax-exempt benchmark rates steadily decline from January 2019 through February of 2020. Technicals in the muni market were strong, meaning that demand was significantly higher than supply. The muni market benefited from increased demand from institutional customers, including mutual funds. ETFs and separately managed accounts. In fact, in 2019, mutual funds saw inflows of $94 billion, which is 30% more than the previous four years combined. In January and February of 2020 alone, inflows to mutual funds exceeded $18 billion. Very strong demand. Since 2018, holdings for mutual funds, ETFs, and closed-end funds have increased from $810 billion to more than $1 trillion. At the same time, we have seen dealer inventories decrease from $26 billion to $10 billion. So the overall market heading into March was very strong.
0: Thank you, John. Many of our listeners may remember all too well what happened next. So can you speak to the intense market dislocation that began in March?
1: Well, let me start by saying the market dislocation in March was really a liquidity issue and not a credit issue. And what I mean by that is the credit impact of the pandemic was really not known. In fact, for a lot of issuers, it's still not even known today. So what happened was individual investors became concerned about uncertainty from the pandemic and began redeeming their mutual fund shares and other investments. In early March, we saw the market begin to see increasing levels of selling from institutional investors. In each of the final two weeks of March, mutual fund companies saw outflows of over $19 billion. The market had never seen anything like that. In fact, prior to March, the largest outflow week was less than $8 billion. And if you took the three largest outflow weeks ever seen, they would not even equal $19 billion combined. Trade data reported to the MSRB also showed a significant increase in customer sales of more than $1 million. The reason we use this number is transactions of more than $1 million are often used as a proxy for institutional investor trading. So prior to March of 2020, the par value of sales of customers of more than $1 million averaged about $1.5 billion per day. On the week of March 16th, we saw the average volume soar to $5.6 billion. And the week of March 23rd saw an average of just over $5 billion. And on three consecutive trading days in March, we saw customer sale volume on trades of more than a million dollars exceeding $6.5 billion, more than four times the average we had seen prior to March. Selling from institutional investors really overwhelmed the market and overwhelmed demand, and benchmarked interest rates rose dramatically. The new issue market came to a halt as issuers postponed deals due to uncertainty in the market.
0: It really was just an unprecedented sell-off. Can you talk about then why buyers returned to the market?
1: Well, Leah, fortunately, the sell-off was short and buyers returned very quickly. And the reason was we saw significantly higher yields in the market, and it started to attract additional institutional buyers who considered municipals to be, quote, cheap compared to other asset classes. And if we look at the trade date again for January through February of 2020, Par value of customer purchases of more than a million dollars averaged about $3.3 billion per day. For the weeks of March 16th and 23rd, we saw the average daily volume nearly double, a significant increase in demand from institutional investors because munis recovered slower than some other asset classes. Important as well, individual investors, which are a huge part of the municipal market, were not left behind. Individual investors significantly increased their purchase of municipal bonds at the same time institutions did. We often use trades of 100,000 or less as a proxy for trades by individual investors. And for January through February of 2020, the average number of customer purchases of 100 bonds or less was about 8,500 trades a day. In March of 2020, that number surpassed 13,000 customer purchases a day. So you saw both institutional investors and individual investors come to the market when yield started to rise.
0: Okay. And you've talked a lot about these kind of two critical weeks in March and what was happening in the weeks of March 16th and 23rd. How long did this real volatility and dislocation in the market last?
1: Well, I phrase it as the market dislocation was severe, but fortunately, it was really short-lived. Just to give you an idea, from March 10th to March 23rd, which was 10 trading days, benchmark yields were higher by 180 basis points to 225 basis points, depending on the maturity. For example, 10-year AAA yields went from 0.93%, less than 1%, to 2.87% in just 10 trading days. We saw multiple days where benchmark yields jumped by 50 basis points or more, which is just not something you normally see in the municipal market. Fortunately, the recovery in the market was swift, at least for high-grade municipal bonds. From March 24th to March 27th, just four trading days, benchmark yields were lower by 150 to 175 basis points. Another example, using 10-year AAA yields, they went from 2.87% on March 24th to 1.39% on March 27th. One thing I want to be clear about is I've been talking about high-grade yields and and benchmarks. And high-grade munis made up much of their ground in late March, but not all. But the recovery in high yield would take much
0: longer. Very interesting. Just a traumatic change during that one month in our market. I want to shift now and talk a little bit about many municipal securities investors. They look to the municipal to treasury ratio to really understand where bonds are pricing. And since tax-exempt municipal bonds are exempt from federal income taxes and treasury bonds are not, those high-quality municipal bonds normally trade at yields lower than the corresponding treasury bonds of the same maturity. So what was the municipal to treasury ratio indicating during this time?
1: So Leah, I agree with your comment. I think what we saw, the dislocation and the volatility in market was unprecedented. It's something I had not seen in my 35 years in the municipal business. And Muni treasury ratio is a good way to look at how munis compare to treasury bonds. And I would say heading into March, the Muni treasury ratio looked typical and the Muni treasury ratio began to widen out a little bit in February and early March and it exploded during the dislocation. So to give you an example, the 10-year muni-treasury ratio went from 85% at the end of February to 311% on March 20th, meaning AAA muni yields in 10 years were three times that of treasury yields. It's important to note munis normally trade at lower yields than treasury bonds because of their tax exemption. So to see 10 years at three times treasury is really something the market doesn't see. And the dislocations in the market were really even more dramatic in the short end the one-year muni treasury ratio went to over 1800 percent at one point in time fortunately the market did calm down and from april on we saw the ratios move back to quote normal type of ratios and in fact by year-end ratios for maturities of three years or longer were actually lower than they had been prior to the dislocation in the market so A lot of volatility in the market, a lot of volatility in the muni treasury ratio. But if you looked at it at the end of the year, it once again looked normal.
0: So how did we get back to normal? What do you think are some of these reasons for that calming down, that quick recovery? I kind of have to imagine that we loaned you to go work on that municipal liquidity facility with the Fed that you think that had some sort of positive impact for the market.
1: Well, I think a lot of things the Fed did had a positive impact. And before I get to the MLF, I will say that the Fed's accommodative monetary policy during this period of time really helped not only the municipal market, but all markets. And I think that was a tremendous factor in the recovery in the various markets across the U.S. But yeah, I do think the MLF had a positive impact because it let issuers and investors know issuers would have access to capital. That was a major concern with the disruption in March. And even though rates started to go back down in late March and early April, there were a lot of questions about whether issuers would really have access to the type of capital they would need over the course of the next eight, 10 months. So on April 9th, the Federal Reserve did announce the establishment of an emergency lending facility called the MLF. I went to go work at the MLF at the end of April. The purpose of the MLF was really to enhance liquidity in the primary market for short-term securities, and allowed the Federal Reserve MLF to purchase up to $500 billion at issuance from eligible issuers with various short-term notes that mature within three years. The MLF was designed as a backstop in the municipal market by offering eligible issuers funding rates, but the funding rates were above historically, quote, normal rates. This is the first time, in my memory, the Federal Reserve has committed to purchasing municipal bonds directly from issuers. And I think it really helped the market because people knew that issuers would be able to borrow for whatever they needed. And I think that it helped the issuers to make plans for what they had to do and what impact the pandemic was going to have on their revenues and expenses. I also think the MLF gave investors confidence. That large municipalities would have access to capital in size. And I think that's an important fact. Some states were eligible to borrow eight, nine, or $10 billion from the facility. So people really felt like there would not be a liquidity crisis for issuers. As investors gained confidence, we started to see it as mutual fund outflows not only stopped, but reversed. In fact, we saw six consecutive months of inflows from mutual funds shortly after we had seen the unprecedented outflows in March. I think when you look at the MLF, a couple of things you should think about is the MLF was really never designed to replace properly functioning capital markets. And the capital markets actually functioned very well. I remember looking back in August, short-term rates reached all-time or near all-time lows. And I remember the state of Texas bought a $7 billion note deal. I think it was a one-year note. And the all-in cost to the issuer was less than 0.25%. I would say that's a really effective funding for any state, and I think it showed just how resilient the muni market was. And frankly, I don't think that any facility from the Fed or any other program is supposed to compete when the capital markets are functioning the way they were really shortly after, I would say, starting in June or so.
0: So let's talk about that a little bit more, this proper functioning of the market. What do you think 2020 kind of tells us about the state of the municipal market?
1: I think it's one word, resiliency. The muni market really showed just how resilient it could be. On March 20th and March 23rd, benchmark AAA rates in the first five years on the curve hit all-time highs. They recovered very quickly. And what you saw from basically April through August was rates continuing to climb not only to levels before the pandemic, but in the short end to all-time low rates. I don't think anyone expected to see that in late March or early April. And to me, the one word that always comes to mind for the market in 2020 is resilient.
0: You know, I think that might be the theme word for all of us in 2020. It was a really unusual year in every respect, but for the mini market as well. We've talked a lot so far about trading, but you've mentioned that also one of the concerns that we were seeing in that March timeframe was that halt in the primary market due to the issuer and the investor uncertainty. And yet, similar story here that despite that halt, we then saw record issuance in 2020. Can you talk a little bit about those issuance trends from the year?
1: Surely. And I think it's just a similar story to what we talked about with rates. If you go back to March, which seems so long ago, yet not so long ago, I guess. New issue volume for March was about $20 billion. And that was less than half of what we had seen in February of 2020. And most of that issuance really came before March 10th. And the capital markets really kind of came to a halt, especially the new issue side of the market. There was a concern from issuers and investors about whether issuers would have access to the new issue market and in what size, and how quickly, and what credit ratings would be needed to access the markets. However, really similar to the story with yields, despite the halt in March, as you said, the municipal market had a record supply of $483 billion in 2020. So as rates moved down, issuers began to return to the market, and it happened sort of in a progression. Initially, the new issue market was mostly open to higher-rated issuers, But over the summer, many, but maybe not all, lower-rated issuers started having access to the market as well. By year-end, new issue volume was up 13% compared to 2019, and as we mentioned before, also at an all-time record. The increase in volume was driven by a huge increase in taxable issuance. Municipalities issued $146 billion in taxable municipal debt, which was more than double the amount we had seen in 2019. Tax-exempt issuers for 2020 was basically the same as we had seen in 2019. Taxable debt represented 30% of market issuance in 2020, which was up from 17% in 2019. The reason for this large increase in taxable debt was issuers took advantage of low interest rates to refund outstanding tax-exempt debt with taxable debt. So rates had gotten so low that it still made sense for issuers to refund tax-exempt deals with taxable debt, and save them a significant amount of money for the year refunding volume which shows how much of the deals were to refund older deals was up 37 percent, while new money issuance only rose by four percent so issuers didn't go out and issue a lot of new debt they issued the same amount we'd seen the year before but they significantly increased their refunding which helps them to save money and plug gaps in any budget they might have One other note is the taxable issuance probably underestimates or really does underestimate how much was issued by potential issuers. It's estimated that higher education institutions and hospitals issued an additional $40 billion in the corporate bond market. Taxable issuance in both the municipal and corporate markets attracted interest from foreign investors, and foreign investors became interested in this market because it has a history of very low defaults and offered rates that were above zero, where with many other countries, their rates are at zero or even below zero. So the taxable market really grew dramatically, increased the amount of people who were interested in the market, and helped issuers to take care of their balance sheets and replace revenue that was lost or expenses that increased.
0: That taxable trend is certainly an interesting one, and you've talked a little bit about the impact that issuers had, budget gaps, revenue loss, and the effect that they had, but we've also really emphasized in this conversation that the March dislocation was driven by liquidity and not by credit issues, but we obviously... Do see that impact of COVID-19 on the revenue of state and local government issuers. So there certainly is some concern in that credit area in the market. Could you kind of talk a little bit about what we're seeing from the major credit rating agencies and how they evaluated credit risk in 2020?
1: Sure. And your point is a good one. There was significant impact on credit. My point of it being liquidity was at the beginning, it really just wasn't known what the impact would be. But I think there's a few things that you can look at to show what a difference it was in 2020 from a credit perspective. So the first thing I look at is prior to the pandemic, S&P Global Ratings had three sectors, which were higher ed, ports, and mass transit on negative credit watch. By April 1st, they had placed all sectors in public finance on negative credit watch. So again, making a decision that this could have an impact, but really not knowing what the impact would be. 2020 was also the first year in quite a while we saw downgrades, outnumber upgrades. S&P, the ratio of upgrades to downgrades stood at 0.27. The last time S&P had more downgrades than upgrades was in 2011. For Fitch, they downgraded 181 public finance issuers and upgraded 100. Again, 2020 was the first time Fitch had had more downgrades than upgrades since 2013. So there was an impact obviously to credit, but I think the impact was measured overall But like I said, when you see that downgrades outpace upgrades for the first time in eight, nine, 10 years, it's a significant impact.
0: Certainly. And the place a lot of us go to understand the impact on state and local governments is their disclosure documents that they're filing to the EMA website where they're describing their financial and their operating condition and material impacts. And so that's something that we kind of quickly at the MSRB went into action to see what we could learn from these disclosure filings as they were being made. Maybe you can talk a little bit about these kinds of disclosures referencing the pandemic's effects and how we tracked them here at the MSRB.
1: Sure. I think our data team at the MSRB did a great job getting information out to the market. We started looking at COVID-related disclosures, I would say, in late February or maybe early March. Uh, and if you look back in the year, the MSRB received about 38,000 COVID-19-related disclosures from February through December. It accounted for 21% of all primary market and continuing disclosures submitted to the MSRB. So obviously a significant amount of disclosures sent to us. In the primary market, 64% of all disclosures received referenced COVID-19. And more than 26,000 COVID-19 related continuing disclosures were received. This represented 16% of all continuing disclosures submitted to the EMMA website between February and December. Finally, if we look back, 84% of the COVID continuing disclosures fell under the annual financial disclosure category, while event-based disclosures accounted for the remaining 16%. So issuers were trying to get the word out, even if they weren't quite sure what the impact was going to be, that the COVID pandemic would have some impact on their revenues and expenses.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We were seeing so much come into the MS system describing this. And I definitely encourage folks, if they missed our recent podcast conversation with the MSRB's chief data officer and our chief technology officer, we really dive into how the MSRB was able to do that keyword search for COVID related references in these disclosure documents and consolidate and compile all of those disclosures into this report that we could then make available to the market, really as a service so that people could see what was going on in their communities, other issuers could see see how the issuer community was responding to describing the impacts and the uncertainties. So that conversation, I definitely encourage people to take a listen to if you're interested in what the MSRB did there and how we had to leverage technology to help shine a light on market trends at an important time for the market. But here we are now, we're almost two months into 2021, pandemic still not resolved. Maybe John, you can just give us a little bit of a preview about what you've seen so far this year.
1: Surely, uh, When I think about it, 2020 is a tough act for any year to follow, but I think the market's trying its best. And when I look at what's happened so far, a few themes continue. Mutual funds continue to see record inflows. The first five weeks of the year, ICI shows inflows of more than $15 billion, which is the most over any five-week period of time we've ever seen. In the new issue market, tax-exempt issuers is off to a slow start. Issuers are really waiting to see what kind of aid might be coming out of Congress in a stimulus package, so they've been slow to issue tax-exempt debt. However, we continue to see high volumes of taxable debt, including debt to refund previous issues. What you have now in the market is, again, you've got very strong demand because of the mutual fund flows and other investors and light supply in the tax exempt market. So we started to see rates continue to go down in the muni space. As a matter of fact, the short term rates as they were in August are once again at or close to all time lows. And the muni treasury ratio really has gone the other way from being normal. We talked about muni treasury ratios starting last year at 85% in 10 years. Right now it stands at 58%. That means municipals are very expensive relative to the treasury market, and I think it just reflects just how much demand there is in the marketplace right now. Finally, we have seen credit spreads really narrow dramatically. I would say credit spreads could be in by 90 or 100 basis points so far this year because there's demand, but not just demand for high grades, but there's also demand for any issuer that might have additional yield for investors to pick up. So it's continuing to be a resilient marketplace. It's a fascinating market to watch and we will keep people abreast of any major developments that we might see in the future.
0: Great. Thank you so much, John, for your time today, for talking us through what we observed in 2020 and for this early look at what we're expecting to see in 2021. I hope everyone stays tuned for future episodes of the MSRB podcast. We always like this opportunity to have these conversations with folks like John Bagley, who really played such an interesting and impactful role in the market during this unusual past year. And we look forward to continuing these kinds of conversations in the future. Thank you.
2: Do you want a visual look into the March market dislocation? The MSRB's EMA website provides free daily and historical yield curves from third-party providers. You can also explore other topics discussed on today's episode, such as new issuance volume and continuing disclosure statistics. Visit emma.msrb.org today. The information provided in this MSRB podcast is intended for educational purposes only and provides a general overview of the subject matter. The content of the podcast is not intended to provide and does not constitute legal, investment, tax, business, or other advice and is not an MSRB rule or an amendment to or an interpretation to any MSRB rule. Compliance with conduct recommended in the podcast does not mean that a firm or individual has complied fully with obligations under the MSRB rules other self-regulatory rules, or laws or regulations. The MSRB podcasts are the sole property of the MSRB. You may access and download the MSRB podcast only for educational, non-commercial use. You may not reproduce them in whole or in part in any form or reference them in any publication without the MSRB's prior written consent. Copyright 2020, the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board. All rights reserved. Thank you for listening to the MSRB podcast.